Welcome to our discussion segment on General Sherman. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. And today we're talking about War is Hell, William Tecumseh Sherman. Let's get started. Hey, John. How's it going? Oh, just fine. Good, good. Really enjoyed this because I've always been fascinated by General Sherman. Oh, he's one of my favorite characters in all of American history. And I think he gets a bad rap. So I really... Certainly south of the uh, Mason-Dixon <laughs> line. By the way, I have to issue an apology to all of my Atlanta-based friends for the number of jokes that I had to leave out and the number of jokes that I will make in this discussion about him burning your city to the ground. Yeah, like with a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been fascinated by Sherman, just, just his grit his intentions, all these things. Mm -hmm. And uh, even starting with the quote on this one, talking about like, I implore you, understand that you're going to yep. lose. Oh, there yeah. wasn't like, you might not do real well. Oh, yeah. It's like, you're going to lose. And unfortunately, we had to cut some of the quote out. He goes into even more detail about exactly why the North is going to win this war, and there's nothing that the South can do about it. He makes it crystal clear that the North, when it comes to population, when it comes to industry, when it comes to rail lines, when it comes to every measurement of war except for, as you put it, tenacity and grit, and, you know, the kind of the home field advantage, the defensive strategy that the South could pursue, the North had every advantage possible yeah. in a war. Absolutely. Yeah. So first question, John, how did his acceptance of war being hell influence his ability to command and wage war? Well, it made him more ruthless, I think, than almost any of the other Union generals ruthless without being cruel because there were generals who inflicted more damage on the south but a lot of them did it for purely personal or for ideological reasons sherman wanted to make the south hurt he wanted to quote make georgia howl not because he hated individual southerners he hated the south as a political organization which allowed slavery but he didn't hate average southerners so he understood he needed to maximize his striking power, where it would do the most damage. And so when then you drill down into his strategy and his tactics, in his march to Atlanta, he only engaged in one battle. He went, it's probably about 100 miles, 120 miles from Chickamauga, where his march to Atlanta started, to Atlanta itself. He only fought one major battle at Kennesaw Mountain in that entire, the rest of the time he's skirting around the enemy, preserving his strength so that he can deliver the most striking power where it mattered the most, in Atlanta. The army that Johnston and then later Hood commanded that was opposing him was kind of immaterial. And this is the opposite of Grant, who fights in the 83 miles from Richmond or from the, uh, Washington to Richmond. He fights something like 20 or 30 major battles. So if Sherman so, fought less battles, why was he so feared? It was almost his rage at what the South was doing to its citizens. Grant, I don't think, was ever feared by the South. He was just the next in a long line of northern commanders of the, well, the entire army, but he moved with the Army of the Potomac in the Eastern Theater. They didn't really understand. They, they feared him maybe as a butcher, or they, they considered him to be a butcher because he lost 80,000 men in his overland campaign, but they didn't fear Sherman the, or Grant the man. They feared Sherman the man because of his reputation, because of his ferocity in battle uh, earned early on at Shiloh and at Vicksburg. They understood Grant's not coming to destroy our lives. He's coming to defeat our armies. Sherman is coming to destroy everything we hold dear. He has come to burn our communities to the ground. Not to kill us. Neither Grant nor Sherman were interested in killing civilians. But 
Grant wouldn't take your home, wouldn't destroy your home unless it helped him militarily in terms of his advance to Richmond. Sherman would burn your house because it was your house so in order to break your and your community's desire to continue the war. So how could it be said then that he didn't hate Southerners? I mean, he's taking everything from them. Did, did he feel like burning their home and burning their towns mm -hmm. and, and the fields and everything was a way just to cripple the South? Yes. Or, okay, so as, he did, as he said, there's a quote, I think it was at the end of the podcast, where he talks about war is cruelty. The crueler it is, the sooner it will end. Okay. He believes that he is inflicting damage on Southern infrastructure to prevent a greater cruelty, which would be the continuation of the war and the continuation of slavery. So you, you would say that he thought he was being humane? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. So you spoke a bit about his perceived instability in his mind. Like there were a lot of different accounts of people saying that he was unstable, that he did have those rage challenges and all sure. that. He was depressed. He uh, contemplated suicide. Contemplated even, suicide, yeah. all those things. How uh, substantiated is that? Like, is, is it is it fairly well recorded that he had all of these oh, yes. issues? Or was it just his opponents saying? No, 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 no. It was, it was his opponents ascribing a, a pathology to it. He did have rage issues. He did consider suicide. He was very uncomfortable in large crowds. He preferred the company of a small group of friends, things like things that psychologists have now attributed possibly to some form of autism and things like that. At the time were considered asocial behavior and, and maybe signs of insanity or schizophrenia or things of that nature. Okay. So he did have those episodes, but it was his opponents who said, well, because he has these episodes, he's clearly crazy. There's certainly an, a bit of bipolarity to it. Because there would be days when he'd be just fine, then there'd be days when he was very, very low. I don't want to say that he was bipolar. I'm not, you know, a doctor or a psychologist or anything like that. But I think there was an element to that, possibly. I've heard the word psychotic used when I've read about Sherman. Yeah, I don't, th I don't think okay. that's the case. I don't think so either. As he may have had a psychotic episode in 1861 brought on by the fact when he was considering suicide. He was brought on by the fact that no one was listening to him. He is foreseeing the course of the war in 1861 and 62, and he's saying... You've got to change strategy. You've got to do this and this and this and this. And Halleck and, and the bureaucrats in Washington are like, oh, that's just crazy old. So that leads perfectly into something I was curious about. You, you talked a lot about some of his private industry mm -hmm. dealings. Most of them were failures. Yes. Or all of them were. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Similar so, to Grant, except for him being uh, president of a university. That was the only thing he really excelled at outside the military. So you have a man who is in the military pretty much a genius. I mean, it's yes. in terms of like strategy and understanding this is how you wage war. Outside of the military, he just seemed lost. He seemed depressed. He tried all these things, tried to make them work. What I see in this man's life is a man who was born to be in the army, to be a leader, to command armies. And when he's not in there, when he's not performing that task, mm -hmm. he's lost. I don't know that that was the case because... I have to confess that his, period, his, his time between the Mexican War and the Civil War, I've read bits about and I've read his autobiography and his diaries, but he seems to focus much more on his family at those times. I think he derived true joy from his family. And when you know, he, he and, and, and his wife were very close and they had, I believe, I believe it was eight children and he loved his children very dearly, he got his joy from them. When he wasn't with them, he threw himself into his work. Okay. So maybe he was born to be a soldier, but I don't think that's where he got his true joy. I don't think okay. he was a very happy soldier, unlike Grant. Grant was only happy when he was in the military. Interesting. So was his mental or perceived mental instability ever evident in his command? Did anybody see 
see any signs of depression or obviously saw signs of rage because rage yeah. is a part of war. But in terms of was there anything that caused concern? Not that I can think of. Once Grant gave him a command in the uh, the Army of the Missouri, I believe it was, whatever Grant's army was, I don't think there were any more instances of instability. There was rage, and, and he was still you know, uncomfortable in large crowds and, yeah. and things like that. But I can't think of any instance after Grant finally allowed him to do what he could, what, you know, what he was best at in the military as command troops. I don't think there were any more of those issues. What was Sherman's primary conviction in war? What do you mean? What, what drove him? Ending the war. So, Ending the war as quickly as possible. So it wasn't the love of battle. It no, wasn't the engagement. No. War is hell. I mean, he, he, no one wants to be in hell. His goal was end the war as quickly as possible. And if that means burning your way across Georgia, so be it. Okay. He was the most ardent abolitionist within the military once he actually got into the South and saw the lives that slaves were living. He didn't start the war as a real hardcore abolitionist. His views on slavery were pretty similar to most Northerners. Just don't bring it into my state. And Let then he it saw it. And then he saw it and he realized, my gosh, this cannot continue. So that's where I go back to your comment about it not being like against the Southerners. Because the Southerners were the slave owners. Not all Southerners. Well, I'm, I'm just saying. It's only about 10-15% of Southerners who actually owned any slaves. But his perceived hatred, or I mean not perceived, his actual hatred of slavery... How did he disassociate the, the like the slave owner from the South in terms of that? Because how did it, how did his rage not translate into Gen I hate you? Generally speaking, he did not just burn an entire city or an entire town, with the exception of Atlanta, which actually was not universally his fault. He tried his best to target only key wartime industries and only the key like the plantations and areas of Southern wealth. So when he came into a town, for instance, if there's a cluster of homes of people who really have nothing to do with the war, they've got you know small homes, maybe a barn, uh, maybe a couple cows, things like that, he would take whatever he wanted from them, but he would not burn their home. Okay. Then a mile down the road, after he goes through the town, he comes upon the plantation, that whole plantation's burned because they are the ones who are benefiting from slavery. Okay. So he didn't just, whenever he came across so a southern like home, he just burned, burned it all. Okay. No, no, okay. no, no, no. Because I, I think that there's there's a group of historians who say that he did yeah, it. Yeah, well, like, I mean, that's, and that's the popular image. Right. I mean, it's it's thanks largely to Southern revisionists. But, yeah, that's that's not what happened. He did burn whole villages, whole towns, one whole city, but it was not indiscriminate. Gotcha. So on the topic of Atlanta, um, you had just said that it wasn't necessarily all his fault no. that it burned. Tell our audience about the strategic advantage of burning Atlanta or attacking Atlanta, uh, what actually happened, yeah. and what he took away from that incident. The, the key to Atlanta, again, if you look at the geography of the South, Atlanta is the last east-west railroad that was still in rebel hands. By this point in the war, as we get into uh, the summer of 1864, basically from the Mississippi River, so Louisiana uh, and, and Mississippi, as well as Alabama and and some parts of northern Georgia are all in Union hands, but there's still Confederates out west who are trying to get whatever they can, whatever supplies they can, through to the east to sustain the army. You take Atlanta, you cut that supply line forever. That was the first reason. Second, it was part of Grant's plan to cut the Confederacy in half again. It had already been done at Vicksburg with the seizure of the Mississippi, basically cut the eastern half of the Confederacy in half again as a way to cut off Florida and what was left of the, of the resistance in Alabama 
basically trying to winnow down the fronts to a single front in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. That was, the, that was the key. When it came to the city itself, the southern troops in Atlanta actually started the fires. They were burning whatever supplies they couldn't take as they tried to retreat. Those fires started to get out of control, and it was the Union soldiers, it was Sherman's army, that set fire breaks on the outskirts of the city and that let the fires that the southerners had started burn their way to that fire break. So from the outside world, it looks like Sherman has destroyed the city, but really his troops were setting fire breaks to prevent the, the blaze from spreading outside the city of Atlanta. Interesting. So he was actually protecting the South oh, from like, an enormous conflagration. That flies in the face of a lot of modern thought. Yeah. I think Shelby Foote heard me say that. He would, he would strongly disagree with me. He's one of the more pro-South revisionists. So what was, what was his takeaway? Like once he, once oh. he realized Atlanta was was gone. His takeaway was basically, and I guess it was, well, I don't know if it was really a takeaway. His job was to keep going. His job was go until you reach the Atlantic Ocean. Atlanta was a good starting point, basically, for what became the March to the Sea, where the army split into three wings and burned its way, I think, 80 miles from Atlanta to Savannah. Okay. So tell me about Sherman's neckties. So as he was, we were talking about railroads, as he was marching across Georgia, Whenever they came across railroads, they would rip up the railroad ties. They would carry the, uh, the, the, the wooden base. They would carry that off with them, but the railroad ties themselves, the railroad um, lines themselves, the metal, is obviously too heavy to be able to take with you. So what they would do is they would heat it up, get it as hot as they possibly could, and then wrap it around a tree. Wow. And it was called Sherman's Neckties. And for Southerners who had never seen any kind of industry, there are Southern reports basically these kind of backwoods hick, what we would today might call rednecks, are going through thinking that an angry god had just ripped up the biggest thing they had ever seen in their lives, which was a railroad. They could not imagine what kind of a creature could take, could rip these things up and bend them around trees. That's and there are savage. And there are still trees in Georgia today. It looks like a guy, uh, uh, shall we say, an overweight man with a very, very tight belt because the tree has kind of grown out uh, around it, but the I mean the metal can't bend, and so it's got this band right around the middle of it, and then 150 years of growth after that. Oh wow! It's they <laughs> again break the South's will to fight, destroy their their morale and their ability to even want to continue to wage war. So I think uh, that would do it. Yeah, no kidding. Wow! It was basically firebombing without destruction. Wow. So aside from war, why was Sherman so disinterested in politics? Because he saw what it had done to his friend, General Grant. When Grant became president, he realized, as most president or generals who became presidents had eventually had to realize, being president is very different than commanding an army. When you command an army, you are in charge. You say jump, and the soldiers say how high. That doesn't work when you're dealing with Congress. That doesn't work when you're dealing with the federal bureaucracy, which was starting to come into, uh, into force back then. And so Grant didn't understand how presidential leadership is different from military leadership. He also was far too trusting an individual. He had good friends like Sherman and Sheridan, but he also had some very, very shady characters who kind of latched onto him politically and who ended up, he would appoint them into the cabinet and then they would end up stealing money from the government, causing scandals. His presidency was destroyed by scandals in his second term. And Sherman wanted nothing, he wanted no part of that. Do you think if he had decided to run, there would have been a lot of callbacks to his 
perceived mental instability, would that have been something that they would have cited as saying he's not fit for office? I know that this is a what if scenario, yeah. but that's the thing I didn't understand. There were so many people who were just like, Sherman, you need to run. You need to run to the point where he issues the statement. Yeah. Like, I would not run even if I was called to do so. Mm-hmm. And um, I will not serve if elected. I, I think that's the more interesting part. It's like, okay, they elect him. And then he's like, sorry, not doing it. Yeah. But I mean, early on in life, he was dealing with all these perceptions. Yeah. Like, how did that not influence people's like... Did, did it matter oh, I more think, that he was I don't think war- anyone remember after after he won the well he helped win the war I don't think anyone went back to that now if he had run for president we're getting into the beginnings of modern presidential politics where where a candidate's personality becomes an issue it's possible that there would have been some unscrupulous people who would have gone back and said well the guy's crazy we can't make him president okay. but it's not like modern politics where you always look at a, at a candidate's mental state interesting so if we were sitting across from Sherman right now, what kind of person would we be looking at? Depends. Are we his friend or are we just some random person that he's met? Uh, let's start off with random and if then, then become his gonna friends. Be, he's going to be very quiet, very distant. He's probably going to have that, that, that look that you see in most of the photographs of him where he's got his arms crossed and he's scowling at the camera. He did not like being around strangers at all. Now, if we were his friends, he would probably be a pretty jovial character. He doesn't write about this in his own uh, memoirs, but if you read the memoirs of Grant and Sheridan, he was always cracking jokes. And they were jokes that were not always of the um, cleanest sort. <laughs> he he enjoyed, you know, your mom jokes today. Interesting. Yeah. So one last question. How would Sherman wage war in the modern day? Oh, man. Uh, would he be a Mattis? Oh yes. Okay. Oh, I I think so. Yeah, it it would be it would be a hurricane of destruction, like unlike anything we have ever seen. But are we talking about when he has a president like Abraham Lincoln who says "Have fun," or modern presidents who are always very concerned with public support and public opinion? Because Lincoln gave Grant and Sherman carte blanche, said, "You do what you have to do. You have to win this war in a year." That's the only reason why Sherman was allowed to do what he did is because Lincoln in 1860, in, in March of 1864, summoned Grant to the White House, told him, I'm going to lose re-election next year, he believed, because the war was going so poorly at that point. The Democrats are going to win. The Democrats are going to sign a peace treaty with the Confederacy. You have to win this war in a year. I am not going to interfere in your decisions like he had been doing for the first four years of the war. You have my complete support. I will send you whatever troops, whatever supplies, whatever munitions you need. You have to win this war in 365 days. So if Sherman had a president with that kind, who would give him that kind of latitude, say with the war in Iraq, Sherman would have taken a division or whatever force he was commanding and would have turned it into a gigantic fist and utterly obliterated the enemy. But he would not, he would not have functioned well under the kind of leadership that, say, George W. Bush or Barack Obama provided for the American people, where you also have to consider the political and the public support, public interest areas of warfare. Would he have served if he had been on... Oh, yes, he would have served, but he would not not have been as effective. He would not have been able to conduct a march through the desert, shall we say, in Iraq, like he conducted the march to the sea, without a president who basically would just say, I'm turning you loose, do what you have to do, get to Baghdad, get to Tehran, whatever war scenario you want to use. If you had to compare him to another military commander in history, who would be two people that, that you would compare Sherman to? Um, hmm, that's a good question. Like Patton or somebody? No, I wouldn't compare him to Patton. Um, because Patton was working under Eisenhower, who was very much a political general. 
And I mean, Patton would have been put Patton in charge of the whole European war, and World War Two is over probably seven or eight months earlier. Um, there's, I'm trying to think of an American general before or since. There really isn't one because his circumstances were so unique. Again, the Civil War is the only time we've ever had a president give complete control of the military over to the generals. You almost have to go back to antiquity. I mean, or at least an era before modern politics. I would say you could go with the Duke of Marlborough, who uh, is in the UK, is an ancestor of Winston Churchill. His campaign against Louis XVI and other enemies of Great Britain in, I believe it was the War of the Spanish Succession, he was basically a tidal wave of destruction. You almost have to go back to like Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great in terms of just having the ability to, one, motivate his troops, and two, be so incredibly effective. And then one other one, and this is a comparison that is not mine, uh, Victor Davis Hanson, who's probably the best American military historian alive today, compares him to an ancient Greek general by the name of Epaminondas, who led the army of Thebes in battle and was equally ruthless and equally effective and equally as ideologically driven. So you can compare him to, to Epaminondas. So part of what I'm hearing, too, is that it seems like politics make war worse in terms of you're talking about the effectiveness of how, how, well, how effective Sherman would be nowadays. And we think about Vietnam. We th huh. think about the Gulf War. Think about <laughs> Gulf War Two. We think about just the, I, the I politics say, of it. I won't say politics makes war. What did you say? Less. less I said worse. Makes but, it work. Yeah. I won't say that. I will say politics makes the military less efficient. Now. Generally speaking, that's a good thing. I am a firm believer, as a military historian, in civilian control of the military. Because historically, when the military controls public policy, you get dictatorships. So I am not here, sitting here saying, you know what, I want to see the military running, running the show here in the United States. Right, but I don't think that's but, what we're talking about. Well, right. But what, I'm, what I am saying is that political interference in war fighting on the battlefield itself, in, right. in politics has a role in grand strategy. But when you get to, uh, down one level below that to strategy itself, that's where you have problems. That's what happened in Vietnam. That's what happened in the first uh, three and a half years of the Civil War. That's what's happened in the current war on terror. Politics is dictating strategy. And strategy should be left to the generals. It should be left to the experts. Okay. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of War is Hell, William Tecumseh Sherman. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help. Thank you, and see you next week.